Welcome to episode 17 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed our special episode last week with Maggie from Halliburton. What an awesome conversation. Uh, we will be covering a few interesting news stories today on episode 17. Brian, I know you've got a lot to talk about today. Let's start with you. Thanks, Tucker. Um, so the story I saw that was pretty interesting is, and I think it hits every market where our listeners are. If you go into any, really any urban or suburban market, you see cranes. There's a lot of construction across North America. Um, and most of it or half of it or some of it is multifamily construction. And there's been a trend, obviously, with rents growing. I think they peaked um, in 2021 at 18% rent growth. So there's, there is a, a ton of pressure in the markets around the affordability of housing. Uh, rent growth has been overwhelming in many markets. Well, apartment rents, I just saw this report come out, apartment rents went negative July over July, for the first time in a long time, it was 0.7% negative. Um, vacancies are up to 7.3%, surpassing actually the peak during COVID, the June of 2020 COVID uh, peak. And, and there's a massive amount of inventory coming online around the country. So where are we heading from here around the apartment market? If you listen to the other side of the equation, I was listening to an interview with Barry, Barry Sternlich uh, recently, and he's talking about the expiration of the debt that was used to construct all of these buildings. And there's another storm brewing around the expiration of the debt that sits underneath all of these new uh, apartment complexes and apartment buildings. So uh, is, the, you know, is the residential market going to come back to earth and where do we see it um you know where do we see it has it fit into the big overall puzzle around defaults and uh you know the the, the turmoils in the credit markets hey brian let me chime in um i actually found a few different articles that are tangent to the multifamily conversation i think it's fascinating uh, the first one is this article titled a policy overhaul that could aid commercial real estate and it's this idea that um at the local level there's all these um rules around zoning and use, uh, commercial, multifamily, and they don't really like commingling those. But of course, now we're trying to commingle those. We want mixed use and we want that conversion. So we're going to have to update and modify some of the local land use and zoning rules, um, which really begs an interesting question. Like what was the intent originally around civic design where, okay, all the office jobs are going to go here and all the homes are going to go here and you can't build office in the residential area and you can't build homes in the office area. But I think that was a failed premise. Now we want to sort of live where we work, don't we? Okay, so um, maybe a policy overhaul or a bunch of policy overhauls at the local level. And, and we John, just to pause there, I, I'm working on a project in Vancouver, and this is uh, on that note. They have, if anyone has been to Vancouver, it's just a, one of my favorite cities in the world. It's a beautiful city. Well, they have a policy where, um, and this is this is. Vancouver proper, specifically speaking about Burnaby, the city of Burnaby, but they have a policy where if you're a residential developer and there's a huge demand um, for residential, you uh, have to build a portion, a podium office um, space as part of your residential development. And if you go back to the city and looking for more height, more units, they force you to, to build more office on the podium. So 
they're forcing through through government, really good, I think, well thought out government policy, bringing those two uses together. We're actually at our sales meeting this week uh, or last week, and we were talking about this. You're starting to see it. So in Boston, there's a number of new millennium. Um, there's a new millennium tower. They forced those two uses together. Uh, and there's a couple other ones that are in planning right now. But I think I think that is it, it could be a trend because it just makes sense. Live and work, bring them together in an urban environment. So it's uh, and it's not it seems so simple, but there's not a lot of good, at least uh, in my in my world, not a lot of really good development that has successfully done that in, in, uh, on a wide scale. Interesting to hear you say you had a sales meeting. I haven't heard about a sales meeting in a long time. It flashed an image of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Uh, so, yes, and an uh, interesting article title, U.S. office space on track to shrink for the first time on record. The amount of office space in the U.S. declining for what is likely the first time in history. They credit it to these conversions to multifamily and to the demolition of the obsolete office buildings like we've been talking about on this pod. Um, so something's happening there. And you're talking about the demand for, for multifamily. Okay. This morning in CoStar, uh, West Coast cities slam breaks on housing production amid worsening crisis. Uh, let me read to you. Fewer multifamily projects have broken ground this year from Seattle to San Diego in one of the slowest starts to apartment construction in a decade. In San Jose, no apartments have broken ground after more than 7,000 started construction last year. In Seattle, 3,433 apartments started building in the first six months, a drop of nearly 60% from the same time last year. Hmm. So maybe it's not the savior. If there's no, is it overbuilt? You're going to convert more when the multifamily folks are saying hit the brakes? Interesting. Well, it's a, it's akin to the life science boom, in my opinion. Like during COVID, everyone was rushing to do a life science conversion. Um, and some worked out. I, I don't suggest otherwise, but some have not. Uh, and they were too late to the game. And I've seen it happen before in Seattle with even office development. When the market gets to, you know, sub 10% you know, vacancy, developers are rushing to build product. Um, and the first ones out of the ground with good locations, good buildings tend to have success. And then there's always a few stragglers that come in late to the game. And that's when the market starts to correct. So None of this is not um, reminiscent of the playbook we've all seen happen with all asset classes for the, you know, the time we've been in this business for decades. So um, what I can't predict is the future, but what you're telling me, John, it sounds just like what I've seen with all asset classes over the course of my near 20 year career. I think the key difference with housing, though, is that in likely many of these markets that you're referring to, I mean, certainly if we're talking you know, Los Angeles all the way through Seattle, there's housing shortages in probably the majority of those cities. And I think that the issue is just building new construction, super high-end apartments with all kinds of amenities, trying to push rents, trying to capitalize on having unprecedented rental growth continue for another five years, just as it has over the last five years, is simply not realistic. Yet we still have a housing shortage. So how do you reconcile those two things? Whereas um, you know, the demand for life science face, um, space has fallen off of a cliff, right? And that occurred at the same time that we saw this unprecedented boom in the amount of supply. I think the key difference is that the demand for housing uh, is still very high, uh, and now supply is going to fall. So it starts begging the question of what actually happens here in these cities that have ma major ha housing issues, 
um, specifically around affordable housing, not necessarily like affordable units per se, but just units that are less expensive, which tend not to be new construction. Um, I think that we could find ourselves in a pretty uncomfortable situation with a worsening housing crisis, given the you know dramatically reduced construction starts. I mean, seven thousand units uh, you know built or under construction or started construction last year in San Jose by now, and this year it's zero. It's a really not a good sign. Yeah, it would be interesting to see the statistics, John, of of those under construction. How many are the high end that Tucker referenced, which for many people are out of reach financially. How many are low income, uh, which serves the bottom third, maybe bottom quarter of the population? But where's the ones in the middle that serve just the middle class? Um, I don't see many of them here in Seattle. It's not to suggest they're not happening in down south in your neck of the woods, but that would be a really interesting statistic to see if, if, if one exists. I think the fundamental issue with this is just the regulation that exists generally in these West Coast cities that this study is referencing has created so much pressure on development costs that it's really challenging to actually build, right? The uh, policy idea of, hey, let's create all these restrictions, let's have all these permits, all these different things, uh, does not promote development, and it certainly doesn't promote uh, affordable development. So I I think it is a little bit funny where you have these policymakers and, you know, at least before kind of the um, you know, zombie apocalypse wasteland that San Francisco has turned into at times, you know, over recent years. But you had policymakers sitting there saying, why isn't anyone building more apartments? This is crazy. We have this massive ho- housing shortage, not realizing that it's their own policies that has made it completely uh, uneconomical to to build these things. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think there's going to be a market-based solution. Um, markets tend to be pretty efficient. And I'll even take a flyer and throw you an idea at the risk of being ridiculed. Um, wouldn't it be cool, if, so as I think about all this multifamily that's been built in this massive portion of our country that is a renter class, <clears throat> I mentioned before on this pod how um, owning your home is a source of wealth building for a vast majority of Americans. And yet this renter class is frozen out for many of that. They just pay rent and these landlords make money as the values go up. Landlords, <laughs> you know, that harkens to uh, peasants and serfs when you have landlords. Well, maybe one of these multifamily operators comes up with a plan that says, um, hey, uh, renter class, when you rent in our building, you know, you get a little LP interest in the in the development. You participate in the upside, so that all this rent you're paying isn't merely going to rent. I think that the the issue around housing is another consequence of you know 500 basis point increase. There's going to be a pullback in construction because the numbers don't pencil out, and you know I, I think the 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 concept of building affordable housing would take away the actual term affordable or the the proper term affordable. You can't build affordable housing when construction costs are skyrocketing, land costs are skyrocketing, and now cost of debt skyrocketing. It just doesn't happen. So the only way you're going to get anything affordable is the existing inventory that's on the market doesn't have the appreciation that, that the new construction has. And you need to replace it with something new. So the people that can't afford it will go lease it. And the rest of it can stay uh, hopefully at a lower price point. That's in my mind. And if you have a market where 
that all those factors are working against you. We're going to have, and we've seen it, development cycles will slow way down. There'll be a buildup of demand. Pricing will skyrocket again on the rental side. And then they'll come back and they'll start building again, hopefully when, when some of those factors settle down. But it's to me in the, you know, you look over the next three to five years, there's going to be real, this issue is going to get worse, not better. You know, I, I think the cost of debt is an issue that's like, look at Yellow, the, the logistics company that just failed yesterday. It's 20 or 30,000 jobs, massive. I mean, they were as important and into the United States that they received, what was the number? $700 million bailout during COVID, right? So they were, they were deemed a national interest um, you know, to our economy and they receive a bailout a few years later the debt that's sitting on their balance sheet is so cost prohibitive, they, the company fails is is effectively the number one reason that they failed is from what I'm reading. Um, did, you, did you see, so, Brian, regulators came back later and said that, that was a mistake. They should not have qualified for the $700 million loan. They were not vital national security interest. That's, of course, they said that because they're trying to save their jobs, I bet. But they, you know, they qualified at the time. Um, but that, that's another consequence of the, this rising cost of debt. And think about how many companies were either acquired or, or uh, how many acquisitions were made for larger companies with these huge uh, debt service uh, numbers on their balance sheet that they are continuing to see the cost of that debt skyrocket as, you know, as interest rates went up. So. I think there's just a lot of consequences of the interest rate environment we're in today that we're not all looking at. And real estate is a big piece of it in all different, um, in a lot of different ways. But I also think you look at a company like Yellow, there are a lot of companies that are sort of right on the bubble, right on the margin, where the rise in interest rate wipes them out. Um, but they weren't exactly crushing it before. Um, they've been sort of bumping along and struggling for years. They're trying to be a low cost solution provider and the formula was barely working. And so, yeah, the interest rate wiped them out. But that's sort of a natural cleansing effect of market cycles anyway, I believe. Hey, since you brought up um, rising interest rates, I have another article. And just a reminder, maybe everybody already knows this, but like this banking crisis isn't over. Um, it's just out of mind and it's still coming. It's like a train wreck in slow motion. Um, my article says, who's this from? Market Watch, $1 trillion wall of worry, commercial real estate spiraling through 2027. I think it was a trillion dollars just by the end of 2024. Although I heard you, Brian, say you thought it was $1.5 trillion. Like this is coming. And it's in addition to all these um, unrealized losses that the banks aren't required to mark to market. And you mentioned regulators earlier. Thank goodness they're coming back to their jobs. They weren't paying attention to Silicon Valley Bank at all. Uh, but now it appears that they're starting to pay attention. I just remind us all that like this banking thing is going to play out over time. It hasn't gone away. And uh, we're going to need to address what we do with bank deposits, regional banks. And do we all just flood to the big four? I mean, this is a problem that's still hanging out there. You speak about the regulators, and they did come out with a 90-page um, a document. This is in the Wall Street Journal for anyone that wants to look at this a couple days ago. Um, about that tidal wave you talked about, John of these loans that are coming due. And the funny thing was, is like, it just sounded like 2008, 2009, all over again, where they had a 90 day guidance on what to deal with these banks. And then, uh, suggested in part that they are advocating for short-term workouts. Um, there's no doubt that there's a lot of loans coming due. I think the number was 1 trillion 
for the balance of this year, inclusive of next year, um, which is crazy. Um, but I mean, there's no question the market is is suffering. There was 61% less commercial real estate sales in 2023 through May, um, only 130 billion, which seems like a lot of money, but that was 61% less than what we saw in 2022. Um, the thing that I have, and the reason I'm so skeptical that this is going to work, this whole what they used to call blend and extend or blend and pretend, sorry, um, is that the conditions today are a lot different than what they were in 2009. Okay, you know, for starters, interest rates were way lower um, than they are today. Okay, that's not going to change. And then secondarily, unemployment was a lot higher back then um, than it is today. And so there were tens of thousands of office jobs added, uh, which helped reduce the office vacancy back then. That's not happening now either. And so go ahead and, you know, blend and pretend, um, you know, there's still some rent coming in, but the office market is so different now than it was back then where, you know, there was hope then. Now the, the hope that, you know, these banks and these landlords have to, you know, um, have is that somehow, we're going to erase all of the work from home, work from re work remote, whatever you want to call it, that became so prolific during the pandemic that all of a sudden just gets wiped out. There's none of it or very, very little of it. And well, yes, there are people coming back to the office. I saw a report that, um, you know, Jones Lang LaSalle came out last week saying that there's going to be millions of people coming back to the office next year. And, you know, we're about to see a huge surge of, of leasing. I, who, who knows if that's going to even occur. But the point being is that I don't think the fundamentals um, yield much hope um, for those banks that do try and extend loans. I mean, yes, maybe you could argue that a default is worse than just getting some kind of money because there are the buildings aren't completely empty. There's some cash flow. But again, given the interest rates and given unemployment where it is today, I'm not I'm not long on the on the on the um, on the loans for these buildings getting reworked in a positive way. I've said it before on this pod, I'll say it again. I, I think we need to return to boring banks. Like I, in terms of what the solution is, do we increase the FDIC limit again? Um, and if so, how low, how high? Um, do, do we backstop 100% of deposits? Um, and if so, do we let these banks go make these speculative long-term investments when they're dealing with short-term you know, deposits that could be called overnight? So if you think about it, um, you know, where do you put your money? Okay, if you got money at Schwab, that's not FDIC insured. What's the difference, right? But these stock brokerage accounts hold your money one for one. They actually have the money, unless they're breaking the law. They hold the money one for one. Your money is there when you put the deposit there. And uh, as opposed to the banks, which are the f foundational to the way our economy works, that can loan out, what is it, 90% of the funds that they take in. And uh, sort of the momentum effect, the compounding effect in the market and the liquid um liquidity in the market. But again, if we're going to let them, um, if we're going to guarantee their deposits, man, we can't let them um, gamble with the money, says me. I, I, I want to just go back to uh, Owen's comment because it's, it's JLO coming out. I was going <laughs> to, as you were talking, Owen, it popped in my head because they saw the statement. And they went so far as to say, and I think this is the same mindset that lenders and landlords have when they're, you know, they're, they're extending these, these loans and just taking the cash flow. But they went so far as to say that they believe office occupancy will return to pre-pandemic levels by the end of 2024. And I think that is 
is, uh, you know, I hate to use the term laughable, but it's, I think it's laughable because like, no one I'm talking to, maybe on two days a week or something, but over, if you look at it on a five day work week, there's just no way. I don't think we'll ever go there. And I think it's the same with, with owners and lenders. Lenders are happy to take cash flow because if the, if the, the landlord defaults, hands back the key, they're, they have to pay all this money to try to create that same cash flow. The, the operation is still in place. They're going to have to deal with the tenants. They're going to have to figure out how to operate the building. And, and it's just going to spiral over many assets. So I'll take the cash, keep paying it. It worked before. Let's just see how far we can get this and how, how long we can forget about it until we actually you know, have our, our moment where we need to figure it out. And that's going to be somewhere down the road, probably when the cash flow on the landlord side gets so bad that the landlord just throws the keys on the table and runs away. But the, you know, the, the firms that work with owners, the owners themselves, the banks are all telling a story that to me doesn't align with the realities of the marketplace and what tenants and what users, users of these buildings are actually doing and saying. So it's, uh, I think that reckoning is coming and it'll be, unfortunately it won't be this year or fortunately depends how you look at it, but it'll be before the end of next year, would be my guess. McKinsey did a study of estimating market decline, commercial real estate market decline by 2030 and uh, moderate scenario, it's a 26% decline in values, a severe, it's a 42% decline in values. Um, and so compare that against what your typical LTV loan to value of these um, loans is 70%. If you've got a 70% loan and the market's down 42%, you're underwater. Client, uh, and I'm going to probably butcher the way he says it because he says it a lot better than I, but he, he has said for many years now that owners in brokerage shops have forgotten who the real value comes from, and it's tenants. <laughs> and he said, I think it's we're about to return to a period where we actually get a seat at the table again. And it, all the smart people aren't in the room anymore. Because we add all the value in these buildings, and it's uh, it's so true, and and I look forward to the day that it's here. Totally agree. I forgot, I forgot one of my key points on that: twenty six percent, forty two percent. If the market value is down forty two percent, you've got seventy percent loan to value on average. It's not just the um, property owner that's getting that's underwater. The bank's underwater that by that twelve percent plus transaction costs to get that that asset off their books. So. Watch, watch this space. Um, I've got one more. I don't know if other people have other articles, but um, you guys named some names of some of the big brokerage firms. Um, this one caught my eye. It came out of CoStar just this morning. Uh, Newmark earnings drop 86% on declines in lending and real estate sales. Wow. Um, is that bad? That doesn't sound good. Okay, except let me continue reading. But the firm, the second large commercial real estate broker to report second quarter earnings, is holding to projections made in February that it expects $425 million in EBITDA and $2.5 billion in revenue for 2023 because it's betting that the steady increase in interest rates is over um, over the past year that it will ease. Let me say that again, that the steady increase in interest rates over the past year will ease. Here's a quote from the CEO. As interest rates stabilize, capital market activity will begin to rebound towards the end of the year. He goes on to say, we expect there will be a robust back half of 2024. Uh, and then they compare it to um, CBRE. That outlook is more bullish than projections by CBRE Group, Inc., 
the world's biggest commercial property brokerage, which cut its forecast as earnings fell 57% in the second quarter. It just seems very unrealistic to, I would think, probably 95% of people uh, in the industry to think that the second half of the year could be so crazy strong that it could make up for the first half. I agree that the second half should be significantly better than the first half. If nothing else, it's simply a reversion closer to the mean. You know, we had a very, very like multiple standard deviations away from normal first half in terms of building sales. And if it just is slightly less extreme, it will be a lot better. So I think that's a very safe bet to make. But for it to go from one of the worst periods um, for building sales, like in terms of total volume of sales, to one of the best periods, enough so that it outweighs the very bad first half of the year, I think is just incredibly unlikely. And as John said, perhaps he has information that you know we don't know about, but I think I think it uh, is unlikely. And yeah, I mean, one other thing to consider is that CBRE in terms of how it is capitalized versus how Newmark is capitalized with a very significant amount of debt, I could see them um, feeling that they would be punished a lot more for providing revised earnings uh, versus CBRE, who has been a you know, staple and sort of rock, uh, the least likely of any real estate company in a very, um, you know, cyclical period to have any like going concern or debt default risks or anything like that. Not that Newmark does, but I mean, if, if, you know, this continues and earnings continue to be down 86%, that obviously isn't sustainable. Um, Newmark share price down 36% over a one year period and up 1% today uh, compared to CBRE, which is down 1.5% on a one-year period and up 0.9% today. So both are up the same amount today. So I'm not sure that's a result of the comments. Um, but CBRE year-to-year um, only down somewhere between 1% and 2%. Pretty crazy. While Newmark is down 36%. I just, it, this all brings me back to spending many years inside these publicly traded companies in the pressure that gets put on the tip of the spear brokers on the capital market side and on the, you know, on the tenant rep uh, and landlord side, any brokers around generating fees when the company needs it. Right. So um, I just caution anyone listening to look at it through the lens of if you're working with a, on any part of the business, if you're working with one of these firms, the pressure on these people that you're dealing with to generate fees today is unreal. It is probably higher than it's ever been in their careers. So it's, um, you know, you gotta, you gotta look at things through the lens of, of uh, who, who's, who's providing the information, I think. So not to mention their own personal motivation, given that property sales are down 61% over last year, Brian. People have to make money. So their own personal pressures as well, uh, not knowing their their own financial stability within their household. Exactly. It's, I, I got to tell you, having, you know, this um, approaching my first year out of those organizations and working at Hughes Marino, it couldn't have come at a better time. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a difficult time to be in those organizations. And I'll tell you, I just had a very good friend of mine, someone I've known for over 20 years or right around 20 years. Um, he was a, a very, he's a very talented commercial real estate person on the account side. He's, he's 
a CPA and super smart. I just learned that he was let go out of one of these organizations as part of a wider um, you know, downsizing. So that's uh, a people side. It sucks, but um, you know those organizations are in a tough place. They, they even have to let the good talent out the door if, if the you know and in in previous cycles at different times, what they do is they put you on the bench. We used to call it the wheel. And you just, you know, if you come off an account or an account changes, you get put in, put on the bench and then, you know, spin the wheel, gets put on a different account and they continue to, to retain that talent. Uh, here it's, they let people that are really talented real estate people walk out the door. So it's, um, I'm sure it's happening all across the country and the world. So it's, it's a scary time because then, um, you know, there's people, you know, that are, out of jobs in an industry that's really hard to probably find a job right now. So Brian, and I'm, I, I'm sure you're seeing this too. And in fact, we've seen this on projects that we've worked on together, uh, as I have with Owen and John, we probably will see it together sometime soon. I'm sure you're already seeing it, but, um, the level of real estate execution that is happening at a lot of large organizations seems to be deteriorating. And I think it's a combination of, um, these companies cutting costs and having less people supporting these accounts or maybe less committed, more work from home, more laziness, whatever it might be. Uh, and then also it seems that so many of these organizations are cutting costs and it leaves somebody in a you know director of real estate role at a company. And this, of course, is not all companies, just we've been seeing more of this lately where you have one or two people doing the work of five or 10 and then they're a partner that's supposed to be supporting them may not be supporting them as well. It's a really challenging situation. Um, I've been working on a, a project where we literally can't get a response from a very large company. Everyone would know the name of this company, which we won't say. And our client is trying to sublease space from them. It's a multi eight figure transaction. And we can't even get a response from this company because they are so disorganized. And this is space that they're actively trying to dispose of that they effectively should not even have on the market because they're incapable of making a deal. And you start thinking about the amount of organizations that have major challenges within their real estate department. Um, you know, I was on another call earlier today with Brian and we were talking to, uh, you know, incredibly bright person, have a ton of respect for who is a superb person in this director of real estate role has some limited support um, and isn't able to get into the place of playing offense, right? Isn't able to use uh, the strategic, hey, this is highest priority. Let's do this. Let's do that. This is what we're focused on as an organization because they're just trying to catch up, just trying to, you know, keep leases from expiring without, you know, getting kicked out of buildings or whatever might happen. Um, so it's really interesting that in a time where companies are more focused than ever on saving money, that so few of these real estate departments are being supported properly in order to actually execute on that uh, on the real estate side of things. At a time when everyone's talking about their real estate, like almost every company has some dynamic elements to their real estate. Maybe they need 20 or 30 percent less. Maybe they're paying 20 to 30 percent above market. There's been this big type, you know, seismic shift. So everybody's thinking about it, but they're not. Yeah. And there, there are, certainly are some bright spots in here of companies that are doing a phenomenal job. I mean, 
if you listen to episode 16 uh, released last week with Maggie, who is in charge of real estate for Halliburton, uh, and I, I noted this on last week's episode with Maggie, but it sounds like Halliburton is one of the most well-run real estate departments of any you know Fortune 500 company around that we've talked to and seen. So there's certainly people out there that are doing a, a great job, but I think there's a large percentage of these uh, you know corporate real estate departments that are uh, overworked, understaffed, and having a really hard time being strategic. And when you can be strategic, that's when you can unlock these really large opportunities for savings uh, versus just being reactive and just, you know, trying to renew leases and, you know, do expansions, respond to estoppels and just kind of doing the basics. And if you can do the basics super well, then I think you have the opportunity to step up and do things that can be transformative for an organization. Yeah, and I, I find it funny when people lay people off within an organization on the real estate team. Uh, for the sake of saving some labor costs, um, figuring that one person or maybe two can just handle putting out the fires. And like you said, renewing leases, extending leases, moving when they have to. But if you look at the balance sheet, for most companies, real estate's the second biggest line item. So why would you, I don't know, I'm just a funny question, but why would you lay people off that serve the second biggest cost to your organization? that truly can pay for themselves many, many times over um, by being strategic and helping find ways to optimize savings and uh, be more efficient with their real estate spend. It just doesn't make sense. But that's where, you know, for, for our sake, you know, we're doing that for companies right now that are limited with resources. And that's what's been kind of the most fulfilling part of my job over the past couple of years is being able to help companies that don't have the resources internally uh, generate the savings that's meaningful to them to help shore up their bottom line. Hundred percent, I agree. Um, and I'm, you know, both things—they're laying people off, but they're also not allowing these organizations to to bring on the resources that they need. Right? It's there's hiring freezes or just you know they're taking on. I mean, a particular person we were speaking with had the role of M and A and real estate, and it's a massive organization with hundreds and hundreds of locations. And those are two jobs that could use a team around each of them, uh, certainly two people. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's budget constraints, it's concerns about the future economy. And, and um, I think no, there's no time that, that in my career that I've seen where companies need more than a broker. They need smart, people that understand real estate, the, the execution uh, you know, can be the easiest part if you figure out the strategy, understand your organization, understand needs, and, and ultimately the execution comes when all that's figured out, it's, it's the easy part. And at no time in my career with so many internal and external factors on all asset classes, I mean, if you think, look at the office market, that is massively being disrupted. Industrial, massively disrupted. Life sciences, growing like crazy, massively disrupted on the upside with the lack of space. And now on the downside with you know, 80 subleases in Boston, over 2 million square feet of, of vacancy kind of overnight. So there's, there's just, so it doesn't matter what portfolio you're running. It, there's disruption and just the need for really good, smart teams to help figure it out more than ever. Shout out. You mentioned Getting back to basics, shout out to our friend Joe Calloway. He's so good at the basics, they become cutting edge. 
let's wrap up with that. Thanks for tuning in to episode 17. Uh, We really appreciate it. And we will be back again soon. Thanks.